Hello, welcome to the first episode of the Bot Next Door. Today, I'm talking with Marianna Ganapini. Marianna holds a PhD in philosophy from the John Hopkins University. She's assistant professor at the Union College and faculty director at the Montreal AI Ethic Institute. Today, we talk about conscious AI and consciousness at large. We talk about the challenges of online moderation and we get into a possible definition of the concept of harm. I'm very happy with this first conversation. I'm not that happy with my poor understanding of how a mic works. Hence, you'll hear that the sound quality from my side is less than ideal. I hope you'll enjoy the episode anyway. And without further ado, here's the bot next door with Marianna Ganapini. All right. I didn't plan to start from this question, but uh, recent events make it almost mandatory. So I wanted to ask you, what do you think about uh, Google's Lambda, the sanctioned AI. So um, there's been a lot of hype and a lot of talking around this issue. Um, although it's an issue in and of itself that has been talked about and thought of and discussed in philosophy for a while. And so it's nothing new uh, for, for, for those who actually work in this in this space. Um, I teach a class, it's called Minds and Machines, and we talk about sentient AI, consciousness and AI, intelligent AI, the whole time. So it's uh, sort of, it's funny how this is actually a, such, a, such an attractive topic, something that people are so attracted to, but it's nothing, it's nothing new. So the question is, is it, is it worth talking about? Well, the answer is yes. So it's definitely something interesting and, and exciting. But on in all, I think that it has attracted a lot of attention in the media uh, recently. And it seems to be the, the focus of attention when it comes to all things AI. So AI is, is interesting and exciting insofar as it can be conscious, conscious or sentient in some, in some ways. But you might think that that's actually not the main, or import, main important aspect of AI right, uh, right now. Um, it is maybe possible that we're going to have an sentient AI, but um, it is—it's not even clear what that that's going to look like. It's not even clear how we establish that that's the case. The, the Turing test has been considered sort of uh, at least um, sort of a, the threshold for intelligence in AI, like human-like intelligence. But even that, it's unclear that that's a good it's a good test. So I'm I'm very skeptical of of this new hype i'm very skeptical that you're gonna get anything interesting out of it i see media being very attracted to it um but i don't think that um you can um, solve the issue in the in the media this is something that has to be talked about in a sort of a more um scientific sort of um yeah setting good and uh it actually distracts from the real problems that we have uh, with ai namely the problems related to bias, privacy, and all the other issues. So I'm a little skeptical that's a good thing that we talk about this right now. Clear, clear. All right. So basically you're saying this seems like the uh, next big thing for the uh, public audience, but it's actually, it's old. It's an old topic for the, uh, for the people that yeah. are concerned with these topics. But the, um, then... Let me ask you this question. Uh, when, when you talk about these systems, how do you define consciousness? What's consciousness? Yeah, well, 
So in, in, in the philosophical reflection around consciousness, you really have uh, sort of two senses on consciousness. Uh, and one, only one of them is, seems to be the real important one. So I'm just going to talk about that one, which is called phenomenological consciousness. So consciousness is not simply knowing about your mental states. It's not self-reflection. It's not metacognition. It's not simply sort of introspection. Consciousness is something that supposedly, supposedly pretty much all creatures or living creatures have. Definitely all animals might have at some, at some level. And it's the, the phenomenal aspect that like what is like to be in a certain state. So you have the famous paper by, by Nagel that talks about what it's like to be a bat. So, and how's that different from being a human? What it's like to be you versus me. Mm-hmm. So our mental states, our mental lives are, um, uh, have, are, have one of the features that some of them have is that having that phenomenology, that quality, that element that is so, so subjective that is hard even to, to describe. And that's different from what the, all the unconscious part of our minds that don't have that quality. And, uh, and so a sentient AI would have uh, the, the ability of feeling those things, of having a certain perspective that is subjective. And that's very hard to, to measure and determine what it is. All right. So discussing this Lambda thing with friends, I came up with my very own definition of consciousness. <laughs> so now I would like to uh, to uh, bring it to your attention and please let me know where it's wrong so that I can refine my thoughts. Basically, I thought of consciousness as the ability of being aware that you're experiencing. And then and I started from that definition because then a model like Lambda, even though it could pass the Turing test, right? I don't have, we don't have any evidence that's aware of the fact that it's translating some input into output. So according to my very own, maybe stupid definition, it wouldn't be conscious. What am I, am I getting something wrong there? I guess so. Uh, what exactly? I mean, you it's hard. when you come talk about consciousness, it's very hard to say what, what's wrong and what's right. But the, the idea is that um, you're talking about awareness, Right. And awareness is, it looks like more like a self-reflection. I'm aware of my surroundings. I'm aware that I'm alive. I'm aware of, of what I'm thinking right now. But you, that already looks like very sophisticated. And in fact, what you want is actually a much more sort of basic level, which is very hard to get. That even, as I mentioned, even very simple creatures, maybe rats or maybe even cockroaches have. And that sort of feeling that is, that has that, like, if you, in philosophy, there is this very famous thought experiment about Mary being trapped in a room. She never seen the color red. One point she's uh, able to get out of the room and for the first time she sees the color red. And she learns something absolutely new that she couldn't know, even if she studied like the, the psychology and the physiology and all the neuroscience behind color formation. Uh, because there is something like feeling a certain, having a certain experience that it's sort of, it's even a form of knowledge. And that is different from just being aware of something. Because you, I can be aware, you can have a zombie that is, so someone who has no experience and is aware that there is a cat in front of him. In the sense that he has a thought process and that thought process maybe sort of, uh, he knows that he has that thought process, but that thought process is completely like, 
black and white has no experience attached to it. So that would be non-conscious in this sort of more phenomenological sense. And so the worry here is that these machines may have very complicated thought processes and even be unaware of those sort of processes in the sense that they can talk about them, but they still don't have that experience attached to those. And that's, uh, that's, that's the mark of consciousness, at least uh, for some philosophers. Is there a way that we'll be able to test yeah. whether they're conscious or not? No, know. right? I mean, the, the, like, the famous idea is that I don't even know if you are conscious, <laughs> to be honest. Correct. I can't Correct. feel your feelings or have your experiences. So um, uh, Descartes said, um, the only thing I can sort of, uh, that, that I can know for sure is the fact that I'm thinking. And what he was actually talking about is the, is the phenomenological sense of consciousness that I have. It's sort of a primary component of all the rest, but I cannot have it for you and you cannot have it for me. And so it's, there is no, the idea of a test is, the, the fact you can test from a sort of behavior standpoint something that is internal to the mind is a very behaviorist idea that has been now very much become part of our AI. The fact that you, oh, there's going to be a test, a behavioral test that tells me this is conscious. Well, that's behaviorism, guys. And behaviorism has, has, has been sort of discredited for uh, a while ago. So it's funny that we're kind of going back to it and uh, and hoping to to kind of get AI to be conscious when, I mean, there is no sign of consciousness nowhere. I mean, nowhere in AI. Maybe it's mm. just imitating us, but not, not being conscious. Mm. Yeah, that's also, I mean, if you, if you think about how these systems are, are developed, they're built. I mean, at the end of the day, if you simplify a little bit the architecture, you think of a lot of data coming in as input and then the, the algorithm learning some patterns um, uh, amongst all those words, all those sentences, and then spitting out something as an output, mm -hmm. right? And then I think the believers that, that, that believe that these kind of systems can be conscious, they attribute a lot of, um, weight to language mm -hmm. and even, uh, maybe define our consciousness as a product of the, of our ability to express ourselves through a uh, spoken verbal language. Is there, based on what you said, just now, I don't think there's any ground to believe that, right? No, not at all. I mean, there is a there is a branch of philosophy that does really put a lot of emphasis on language, but not just language in the sense of sort of saying words or making sentences, uttering sentences. It's more like the ability of exchanging. So if I can have a conversation with you, it kind of goes back to the Turing test, but if I have a conversation with you going back and forth, and you say, oh, can you hold me responsible for what I said? And I'm sort of, it seems that we're establishing like a game, right? Sort of a pattern of, of like a routine between us of giving and asking for reasons, right? I say that I do something, then you hold me accountable. And then I, 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 I defend myself. I give you reasons. I give you explanations. That might really look like a sentient thing. So there is a branch of philosophy that says, well, what you really need is the ability of the eye to engage in language, but in a sort of, in this sort of very sophisticated way of giving and asking for reason. That, mm -hmm. that would be definitely interesting, I think, as, a, as an achievement, because it would definitely put the eye in this, again, language, intelligent game. I don't know if that's consciousness. I mean, let's separate the two. Intelligence is one thing. 
is the mm. ability to maybe really, you know, provide rationalization or at least justifications and engage in that kind of back and forth. That might be intelligence, but that's different from consciousness. Consciousness, again, for philosophers or and, and cognitive scientists who are interested in it, is that more like the feeling? And for that, you don't need language at all. Mm. You can be aware of having, well, I'm using aware again. I wanted to say you can be aware of having a body even without having the words to describe your body. Right. But, yes, yeah, exactly. That's me tending to to, uh, to equate consciousness with yeah, awareness. No? I, will, I will have to yeah, read something about it. <laughs> okay. I guess, the, you know, equating language with consciousness would leave a lot of people unsatisfied because the most interesting questions uh, when we talk about machine consciousness, at least from what I can grasp talking to people is, uh, will it be right to switch it off once it's conscious? Mm -hmm. So we don't really, and those people are interested, I think, in the basic question, uh, can these systems perceive, feel, experience fear mm -hmm. or pain? Let's imagine, yeah. what do you think so about it? So if we imagine they could, I mean, it would be interesting to see how something that is now biological can experience something, again, phenomenologically speaking. Um, and I mean, there, is, there are arguments for thinking that cannot be the case. But assuming that's the case, well, then, yeah, of course, if, we, if you have something that experiences fear and experience and has a level of consciousness, because, I mean, even animals experience fear, but we we do kill mm. them. So, I mean, that, um, that would be an argument for being a vegetarian more than an argument for not switching off um, machines. There's going to be a word for people that don't switch off exactly, machines. Exactly, yeah. Like you leave your TV on every, every single but, day. Oh, yeah, but, <laughs> okay. Exactly. Okay. So, I don't, I mean, this... I mean, there is a there was a long tradition thinking about these issues. Um, the interest, I mean, for me, the interesting part is that okay, there is consciousness. We said we, this is thing that is phenomenological that animals have, and we do kill them without any problem. So that doesn't seem to be so important for like mm. moral status. There is consciousness plus this other stuff that we talked about that ability to give reason, the ability to be rational, the ability to. So engage in a sort of rational thinking, and then, well, okay, if you keep, if you have both, uh, and you sort of, for instance, are, are, you care for a sort of a Kantian perspective, and you think like, well, then the machine becomes an, a rational agent, able of uh, what Kant calls autonomy, then yeah, then maybe it becomes really hard for us the, to to switch them off. Actually, hard, maybe not just hard, but actually not forbidden, like. We can, mm. can't do that. So you will need more than just consciousness. You will need, need consciousness plus rational abilities and the ability to give, uh, to be free, as, as, as Kant uh, thought about autonomy, the ability to follow your reason. Then, yeah, then it becomes, uh, then it will become really hard for, for us to, to not treat this as, as moral agents. But that's, I mean, some people think that that's where we are, like machines who are like able to be rational plus have this, maybe some consciousness attached to that rationality <laughs> but it's i mean there are philosophers who think that so that wouldn't that wouldn't be for a surprise for them for sure interesting and uh, you know you said um even animals are conscious right and we still well most of us still eat them yeah. um so we're fine well most of us are fine uh, killing animals for some purpose but of course it's generally it's generally uh 
let's say, uh, not accepted to kill other people, right? Because I guess we all, um, we all, um, we all come from natural law somehow. So we believe that uh, the human is sacred, uh, maybe because of our uh, religious history or or for something more biological. I don't know. But the what do you think is going to happen to natural law the moment that we have machines that are conscious, intelligent, rational, and maybe way better than us on all those dimensions? Mm. I mean, that's a good question. Uh, more than natural law, and I, what I was thinking is like, um, a lot of our thinking about the mind uh, comes from a sort of dualistic perspective. I mentioned uh, Descartes, René Descartes, um, and sort of thought to be the father of the dualism or certain definitely who put dualism in a systematic way. And, and definitely the idea of dualism is, however, pretty much behind a lot of our religious thinking. Um, because there is the idea that there is the mind, which is sort of the soul, uh, and then there's the body. And the body dies, mm. and the mind maybe goes to heaven or, or whatever. Mm -hmm. Now, the question is, uh, for, for someone who is a dualist, who thinks things like that, then it's very hard to imagine that a machine can have a mind, can really have consciousness and thinking that is not just form of parroting, a form of imitating. Mm. So I would think that for those coming from that tradition or for those who have that strong intuition, then it, it won't be possible to imagine a machine with a, with, a, with a mind or with consciousness. For those who come from a more materialistic standpoint, would just think that the mind is maybe just a, a best and emergent property from the brain or from a certain sort of organization of matter, that would be some, someone who thinks, who thinks that AI can, can have a mind, well then, well, maybe for them coming from the tradition, a more materialistic tradition, that wouldn't be much of a problem. So I think that sort of, we're still gonna have the same divide between those who think that there's really a separation in kind between the mind and the rest and matter, and those who think that the mind is just a result of an organization in, in matter, and so I wouldn't think that there is going to be much of a much of an impact there. But I might be wrong, of course. <laughs> oh right. So what you're saying is basically for uh, dualists, uh, they probably won't regard natural law as a as a uh, outdated concept. Uh, but for materialists, it could be that well, machines just reached or even overtook, uh, um, well human's natural law is that is that a little bit the, the summary i mean of your thoughts um, there? i mean depending what you mean by natural law but the idea is that if if the art if the the law in sense of the normative part what we ought to do comes mm. from what it is the facts then those who think that there is a sort of a at least a link between art and is they won't be, we won't be particularly worried about machine having uh, even consciousness and even having a moral status. Um, for those who think that there is a strong distinction between uh, the art and, 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 and the world, then they, they might not even accept that, that machines have, have, uh, have a mind at all. And they, they're not going to accept that they're going to be moral, moral things. So, um, the link between um, what you think about the status of a normative 
uh, of morality and the normative uh, real depends also on what you think about the metaphysics, how you how you see the world. Do you see the world as having two different kind of substances as dualism, the mind and the rest, the matter? Or do you think that there is a continuum? Because if you think that there is a continuum, then maybe you won't have much of a problem seeing the connection between um, an ex- yeah, and extending the, your moral law to to machines. Yeah. So that's okay. Okay. So it's the, it seems like I know a little bit about philosophy. It, it resonates to me. It, it seems to be linked with the old, uh, well, the old, the, the ever young. Uh, uh, word of ideas from Plato, right? And the, and maybe yeah. more. So that's a yeah. sort of a dualist position. So you got this oh. very different types of world, whereas um, more Aristotelian, so I guess sort of approach, but definitely even more more stronger than Aristotelian approach, would see the the world as as just made, made, of, made of stuff, and yeah. everything kind of comes out of that stuff. Maybe organized in a specific way, but still stuff. And there is nothing uh, beyond that. And stuff is that stuff that is organized around the laws of physics. So physics is the the language that this kind of stuff uses. Mm. Of course, there are levels. There is uh, physics, there is chemistry, there is biology, there is psychology. There are many people accept that multi-layer sort of account of the material world, but they don't accept that there is anything else beyond that material world. Uh, whereas if you're a dualist, yeah, definitely Plato, you might think that, that that's not the case. Yeah. And it's interesting because if you, uh, if we narrow down to the materialists, to the, to the ones espousing, let's say the, uh, the fact that there's only stuff, uh, it seems that there's stuff in this world that has the, um, um, that can make decisions, right? that can decide mm-hmm. whether to go right or left. Mm-hmm. And then the proponents uh, of that view, how will they react when there's a, uh, there's a something that's better than humans at deciding whether we should go right or left? What will, you know, what's going to happen there? So you're, you're still working under the assumption that that's going to be possible, which I'm not, I'm not yeah, too sure. Course. I'm not too sure, to be honest. Uh, I don't have a strong view. I mean, uh, it seems so far we, AI doesn't really decide or is not intelligent at all. So we should, I think we should be clear on that. I don't think that AI is able to do, to make any, any, any decision, but you're thinking what's going to happen if AI is ever going to reach the, the level that is able actually to make decision. Well, I mean, it's, it's not- it depends on what we mean by decisions, yeah. right? Cause okay. the, right. even to, to, yeah, cause to the, even today. AI makes some decisions like um, let's think of face recognition. It would make the decision whether you are who you say you are, if you're actually um, the person that you claim to be. And it does that instead of a most likely of a human being. But of course, here we're talking about higher level decisions, uh, more complex, maybe. Okay. So if you're, okay. So if you're thinking decisions as just the ability of AI on, yeah, of making evaluations of that kind, like this belongs to a certain group or this belongs to a certain category or I recognize this as being that. I mean, that it's a very broad notion of decision because it's a, okay. it has, uh, so it's just following a certain pattern of recognition. Um, 
Whereas in the typical way we talk about decision, you usually talk about decision in terms of something intentional. So I did it mm. because I wanted to. It's the result of my will. Is mm. Hopefully it's also the result of my free will. Uh, and so there is that element of intentionality. It doesn't seem to be present in AI at the moment, for sure. And because it, it, it is really the, the result of a certain kind of ability that we have as humans to feel in a certain way, to process information in a certain way, to understand and apply concepts. And it seems that at least machine learning, if we intend AI as machine learning, uh, doesn't doesn't really do that. It's like it finds patterns and it reproduces that patterns, but it doesn't really seem to be applying concepts and understanding what it's doing. Being, I mean, one one obvious sort of um, element that shows that is the fact that it makes very weird mistakes that humans wouldn't make. So mistakes that highlight the fact that the yeah, AI is not really applying the concept. It's not really understanding what it's doing or what it's saying. It's just reproducing a certain pattern that very skillfully it finds in, in the data set. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't see AI making any decision anytime soon because, like, again, to make decisions, you do need the certain kinds of abilities. And, yeah, I, mm -hmm. I don't see that happening. But, again, that, you yeah. never know for the yeah, future. I can <laughs> Definitely, it could be interesting, but yeah, I, I definitely agree that I, I cannot come up with any example of AI uh, showing intentions, right? Showing uh, a will of its own. Yeah. So if we classify decisions that that way, then uh, probably no decisions are, be ta are being taken by AI these days. Interesting. Uh, there's another topic that I wanted to ask you about, and it's online moderation. Uh, I read a little bit of your of your work there. And the, um, what I really liked about it is that uh, you're basically, you basically said there's no one size fits all, um, which is not something that, again, at least in the public audience, you, uh, you see a lot. And uh, I must say, even myself, when I think about uh, these sorts of problem, I would like to find some sort of principle that can be applied 100% of the time and be moral and be effective and, and just work. But probably reality doesn't work that way, or we're not smart enough to find this principle. I don't know, but it doesn't seem to work. So uh, what do you think? So what I, I think, as, as you just said, I don't think there is uh, any, any, there's any good in trying to find this magic solution that was going to work for, for all cases. So the, um, I, make, I try to make distinctions in terms of the kind of harm that uh, uh, disinformation or misinformation produces uh, or fake news as, as some people uh, talk of. Um, mm -hmm. So the, if you find some, if you see um, things like child pornography, I don't think there's anybody who is like going <laughs> to debate whether we not, we should not moderate it. Oh, of course we should. Similarly, although that's more sort of debated is uh everything that has to do with hate speech. So insulting or um, uh, using um, vicious wor words against certain minorities, for instance, I don't think that that actually should be uh, permitted. And I think that the reason for that is really to try to see the kind of harm that that, that speech produces in, in other people. And I think that there is good reason for thinking 
that very serious harm is, is, being, is being produced by, by, by hate speech. When it comes to disinformation, which is sort of the, and it, that is not, and it's not related to hate speech, then I think we should be honestly much more cautious in thinking about what is the, what, what kind of disinformation are we talking about? Are we talking about a certain kind of disinformation that has, for instance, a role in riots? Because we saw that in some parts of the world in which actually defamation and disinformation against certain groups was a way to actually start an ethnic riot and so start violence. In that case, I think it's obvious that we should stop it. But there are other cases in which people are expressing their opinions, and I don't think that is as obvious that we should moderate that as strongly. Uh, so what we need, what I'm trying to advocate for, is a sort of a, a very specific sort of pattern, okay, of finding ways in which this information or speech in general online creates harm. And so I, I'm part of that liberal tradition, started brought from John Mill, who thinks that harm is the element that allows uh, for uh, restrictions of liberties. Okay, so something has to produce harm so, and it has to cause harm, not just produce it in a sort of weird way. It has to cause. And the notion of causation is completely, it's very difficult to explain and determine. So that's that's already very complicated thing. So uh, I I do think we should we should sort of stop whatever causes harm, but I don't think we have proven at all that all kinds of disinformation causes harm. So that's the problem. So that's why I think like other stuff is useful. So people just talk about content moderation. In particular, they can't talk about like deleting posts and closing accounts. Definitely a good move if there is obvious harm being produced, but there are other tools that psychology has shown that they kind of work. And then they start to be implemented in by social media. And so that's called, it's called inoculation, for instance. Uh, it's, it's a sort of vaccination. So it's like, let's make sure that when you're on social media, you are vaccinated against this information. Let me tell you what looks like this information so you know. And you hopefully won't share it. And if you share it, you're you're doing something like intentional so to speak. So there are all different ways to tackle this information in a way that is sort of prevent preventive. It's, called, it's also called pre-bunking, for instance. Mm. And they, they seem to work at least in the lab or at least in the, in the scientific community, they seem to work. I don't know if they actually work on the social media platforms, but that's something that we need to, to find out. So let's use those tools as well, not just Let's not just close accounts for, for, for the sake of it. Yeah. So that's my, my clear. Take clear. And I, uh, I personally, uh, I think I agree across the board, but that's not very interesting. So, uh, let me ask maybe, uh, some questions that pop up while you were explaining this. Um, uh, at the end of the, at the end of your explanation, you mentioned some preventive measures, mm -hmm. but I think if we look at misinformation, the hard thing is that um, it's hard to proactively, well, it's hard to understand, um, before the event happens, what's going to be the impact of the event. Right. Uh, and we know that misinformation could, uh, play huge role in political decisions and in political, uh, movements, political, in the political landscape. 
So I guess the, the hard thing is that some people just want to avoid that risk preemptively, right? Proactively. Um, but then you take away so much freedom that you don't know, well, am I, am I blocking, am I blocking something that's actually harmful or am I just blocking something that doesn't correspond to what I think reality is or what I think more morality, uh, should stand for. Yeah. What, what do you think? I mean, if you look at what's happening in the U S right now, uh, taking away liberties, taking away rights is exactly what's happening. So I think we should be really careful, uh, even those who are on the liberal side of the spe political spectrum, they should be careful about talking about uh, cutting people's liberties, even if it looks like it's something that uh, is <laughs> advantageous or it's, uh, even, even might look like the right thing to do. Because I think that there is an assault of, on people's actual liberties, like we saw the, the right of uh, having an abortion in many, many um, states in the U.S. and now with the Supreme Court decision, that's that's even more problematic. So coming from that perspective, I, I agree. Sometimes it's hard to determine what's going to sort of, what's going uh, to excite people. And one thing that social media platform should not do, and I worry then that they're actually doing, is that they are... Uh, increasing uh, uh, the the spread of all this, those posts or all those sort of tweets were actually engaging with very harmful content or, or hateful speech and so on and so forth. So there is at least serious responsibility on the part of the social media platforms to avoid spreading misinformation and disinformation, which is very difficult, very, sorry, very different from closing accounts and, and deleting posts. It's like Two side, like to the two extremes, right? On the one hand, boosting the the spread of content that is harmful just because people like it, which is not something you should do. Actually, it's actually it's very it's very dangerous practice. And on the other end, kind of closing accounts and and, and things like that. So the two extremes, which I think social media platforms are engaging in, and and they're and they're doing a disservice to everybody. So. Mm -hmm. But I want to get to your question. So how do we prevent? So, uh, well, there are, if the psychology is right, there are patterns. It's not like, it's not like this information stuff, especially that kind of disinformation that is uh, spread uh, widely. It kind of has the same pattern, has the same sort of rhetoric, has the, has the same sort of hooks. Okay. For instance, children. Uh, children harm to children is one something that enrage a lot of people. So if you post something with the hashtag and, and not like let's protect our kids, that's probably going to be receiving Go a lot viral. of like retweets and stuff like that. So there are patterns, there are things that we can see. And then I'm just going to mention this because I, I think it has to be said, we need more evidence that uh, this information has the impact that, that, that we think we have. It has. Mm. We, we keep saying it. We convince ourselves that it's true. I don't know if that's true. I just want to say there is, evi there is at least some people, some Hugo Mercier, for instance, has a book recently in which he kind of raises some, some concern for this idea that, that, um, that this information is so impactful as, as we think it is. So maybe, maybe, Interesting. yeah, I mean, we, I can definitely can talk about this, but sort of let's be cautious. Let's really get mm. to the facts before we, before we, we talk about 
disinformation's um, effects and stuff like that. That's very interesting that the uh, that we're actually challenging whether uh, misinformation, although it exists, it actually delivers the harms that everybody claims it does. Mm -hmm. I think people tend to believe that because it's so easy to think that other people are being are being uh, are victims of misinformation, yeah. right? Because uh, you just need to have an opinion that's different from mine and and quote a source. And well, I'm going to think that that's misinformation or at least some biased research or biased research. So uh, it's the, uh, it's easy to find evidence in your personal experience that right. mis misinformation is a thing. That's, that's what I'm saying. Good. Exactly. Uh, and yeah, Mercier's point is that his whole book is about the fact that we are not as gullible as we think other people are because we think that we are not gullible, but we do think that other people are. And he might, and, he's, and he tries to show that that's actually not really true. People are not that gullible. People just think what they think. And yeah, they got confirmation bias. We all know that. And so maybe the research I'm trying to do is to say, okay, so assuming that he's at least partially right, why are people sharing fake news? Are, are they trying to harm their reputation? I don't think so. I think they're just signaling their social positioning. They're not mm. telling other people about stuff. They're just saying, hey, I'm one of you. I do believe that, I don't know, uh, Hillary Clinton is engaged in, in the, the pizza gate, which is, of course, an abs absurd uh, thing to say. But it's like, <laughs> if I say it, you recognize me as belonging to your group. It's like gangs members have tattoos. Mm-hmm. People share fake news. That's pretty much people, my thing. People these days, they they um, they uh, show their respect or loyalty to their group by posting yeah. the right news on social media. Yeah, I can see that. I can see that being real. Interesting. But the um, going back to you know uh, to to that grayscale to the fact that we cannot find uh, one size fits all for every problem. I think part of the problem is also that different people, although they would agree that something is a problem, they would opt for a, um, for a different punishment, for a different um, corrective behavior, right? And um, uh, maybe that's not that evident with very serious and very universally frowned upon stuff like uh, child pornography, but for some sorts for some types of hate speech, you would definitely have people that would opt for a harsher or a softer punishment. Um, since we need to encode these different values in scalable solutions, most likely, like AI, what do we do? Do we, do we make this a democracy and then is it a, a winner-take-all approach or something more representative in nature? How does that? Yeah, this is a super difficult yeah. question. Um, I think, well, one thing we can do is exercise some pressure on social media platforms, at least and at least to be more transparent about the, or how they actually doing this content moderation, because every so often you will hear like, oh, fake uh, Facebook knew all about like the hate speech and fake news going on on their sites and they didn't care. Oh, actually they, they sort of made, made sure that it was actually spread, spread more widely. I mean, 
this is, I mean, I'm not the, the first person to say this, but we really need some transparency here. We really need some, some, some clues about how they're doing this, because otherwise there's nothing we can do. And from, from my perspective, uh, being a philosopher, what I try to do is to, to say, okay, what are the permissible practices? Not even the required practices, because that would be even stronger. But the permissible practices mm. of implementing uh, content moderation when it comes to this information on social media. And I, what I'm trying to do is really find that it's sort of an, not an algorithm, but, but something like list a grid in which I, uh, I help the social media platforms to say, okay, this piece of fake news belongs to a certain category. It's harmful. Mm. It spreads, has impact. Okay. Then it has to be uh, canceled or has to be deleted. Or something is much more sort of uh, nuanced. The, the 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 impact is much more vague, so it cannot be deleted. So this sort of what I'm trying to do is really to build a mat matrix in which social media platforms can sort of find ha ways to get around the the problems that they have. But I, again, if they are not transparent, <laughs> all my all my work is sort of uh, it's not going to go anywhere. <laughs> yeah, clear. So. I think uh, what you're saying is let's at least start the process, right? Uh, let's at least start the process of understanding how we want to deal with these things. Uh, the grid that you're mentioning, I guess it's a case to start um, jotting down a baseline of how we want to deal with different, uh, with different uh, situations, with different um, um, uh, online well, situations right, again. Right. Uh, and then if we find out that a certain solution doesn't fit the problem, we change. But that's only possible if we know what's actually happening uh, in the as-is situation exactly. right now. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That makes sense. Right. So, like, of course, you have a, some fake news about, I don't know, COVID shared by one person versus um, millions of, pers of people. Then you have the problem of, yeah, this is just, just to give you an example. So let's assume that this post is causing harm, right? In some way. So you want to take it down. But who is really responsible? Which, I mean, which, we, who is responsible for the harm? Because each one, each one of us is sharing that, right? But my sharing it is not causing anything. Your sharing it is not causing it. It's, of course, the aggregate. So you have a sort of problem, like in the case of pollution, it's like, you're using your car. I'm using my car. We are polluting, but nobody's actually responsible for like the so the tragedies that are happening at the level of global warming. But each one of us is the collective that is that is responsible. So we need a theory that tells us that it's called the many hands problem. Uh, you you have a mm. you you need to tell me why you deleted my post because my post didn't cause anything. I mean, it's not I convinced anybody not to get vaccine. Like my post is like causally speaking, very weak. But of course, mm. I post it, you post it, everybody posts it. And then it becomes, may become actually very harmful. So that's, that's one of the problems that you have with causality, that you don't, mm. how you trace it back. And, you know, see if you want to permit, if you want to allow for violation of a restriction of liberties, you have to show me that I'm causally responsible for some harm, but I'm responsible for sharing one thing. Can be, right? mm. And that's also psychologically very hard to accept for exactly. people, right? Yeah. Because uh, exactly. yeah, 
Good. Some people yeah. are going to be punished. Some are, are not going to be punished. And then the ones that are punished are going to be, but well, why only me? Yeah, why me? Uh, what do I do? Yeah. I just share one thing. It's, it's my freedom exactly. to express my opinion. And got to convince them that, yeah, you shared that. And it became, it became huge. And now it's causing people not to get uh, vaccinated and stuff like that. So, Right. Interesting. Do you have a definition of harm? Ah, ha, 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 good, good, good one. <laughs> no. Uh, I can just go back to John Stuart Mill and say harm is something that causes sort of people to be incapacitated to exercise their rights or something that really sort of hin um, hindered key elements of their sort of lives or their well-being. So if you just insult me, hopefully you're not going to do that. If you insult me, you're not really harm me in any in any way. So to, in order to harm me, you have to strip me uh, of some 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 right or some fundamental element of our, my well-being. So uh, mm. it's hard. Like okay, and how how are you going to so. determine <laughs> that vaccine hesitancy is a harm? Like mm -mm -mm. Yeah, that's hard. So it's a good definition, but it's easy to see how. It could fail to help today, right? Um, but the, the definition of harm, the definition of violence, is an interesting one. I think it's there. Well, I mean, that's... yeah, I mean, you there might not be violence in and of itself. Of course, if you yeah punch someone, that's that's a harm. But harm doesn't. One thing that is important about harm is there's a difference between wrong and to harm someone and to wrong someone. Wrong mm. is like there is an element of intention. When you harm, you might not even have an intention to know that you're doing that yeah, unknowingly, but you might still do it. So that's uh, that's the idea. And I think that there might be two types of harm. There may be sort of pragmatic harm. Uh, when you punch someone, you sort of make him feel bad. Or maybe epistemic harm. Like if you share misinformation... And that they don't allow someone to get to the truth or to make decisions based on good reasons, you might harm them epistemically speaking. But that's mm. that. I'm not sure that's something that Mill would have accepted at all. So, because uh, you still have that freedom to choose. Yeah, exactly. By yourself, right? Yeah. So, you're. I'm. I'm not, I shouldn't be patronizing you. Like, um, mm -mm. Uh, for for uh, for Mill, that was really important. That you're in. Um, sort of sentient being, of course, you're autonomous. And because of that, I shouldn't be making decisions for you. So that's, that's a big problem for, for the notion of epistemic harm, because it seems that if I want to protect you from, the, from, from what's false and just tell you what's true, I'm sort of I'm patronizing, patronizing you. you, I'm infantilizing you, I'm telling that you're not able to distinguish the truth from what's false. And that's something that he, he resisted very, very, very hard. So coming from that... So he's making a phase yeah. for brutal honesty for somehow. Yeah. Like the, the problem is that I can be honest and, and, still, uh, and still tell you what's false. The idea of like, no, we should have a social media that will only truth or at least truth is what is shared. It's problematic from, from his perspective for various reasons uh he actually thought that maybe 
falsity or falsehood is, is a, it's a good thing in some cases, but let, let's leave that aside. Hmm. Um, but even if I impose rules to make sure that the majority of the things that you look and you see online uh, are true, I'm sort of infringing on your autonomy because I'm telling you basically, oh, you can't decide for yourself. You're not able to make decisions about um, epistemic decisions about what's true and what's false. And so it would be resi we're resisting that. And so I'm sort of coming from that tradition and saying, okay, let's be really careful about uh, wishing to uh, impose epistemic rules on social media in ways that are sort of unregulated and uh, sort of half-baked uh, because I think Mill was right that we do we do need to preserve some some element of of um, freedom of expression and definitely some some rights as as I mentioned at the beginning. So yeah, so that's my idea. Yeah, fascinating. Uh, I've got two more questions uh, just to you know to to end the end the session and the podcast. Um, very very easy. What do you think in twenty years will be the coolest thing that we have that we don't have today? And what's going to be the scariest one? Uh, I think quantum computers are both the scariest and something that's going to develop very, very fast. Um, the, the, this, it's, it's just a, it's going to be a, just a different world from the one we see now. If we redevelop, quant we, still ha we already have quantum computers, but we haven't developed them fully or not even at an acceptable sort of level. Once we have that, we we will be able to really scale things and have, and have things that I, I cannot even imagine right now. We're definitely going to have a problem with uh, security and passwords mm. because of the computational ability. Quantum computer services, computers can go really, really fast just to make it very trivial. Um, and they're going to open computational abilities that we don't, we don't mm -hmm. have now. I cannot imagine now. So maybe at that point, I don't know, we will have sentient AI and maybe that's going to be the scariest thing. But uh, I don't think we have to worry right now. So let's worry about the fact that AI is biased, that AI is unethical, that we don't have privacy, that it's uh, stripping away our autonomy. AI has a, a enormous problems now as we're talking, as we are mm -hmm. wearing uh, Apple watches and as we're wearing uh, Fitbits and things like that. They're tracking all our moves. That's a problem mm -hmm. that we have now. So let's try to focus now on focus on the problem we have now. Clear. And what do you think are the main weapons that we have at our disposal to fix that today? Privacy, for example. Well, we have in Europe we have regulations, <laughs> so that's that's a start. The GDPR hmm. is a very thorough regulation in terms of privacy. It doesn't cover all, for sure, but it it really sets the benchmark for for privacy regulations in the US. They're trying to catch up on that as well. So regulations is the, is the first thing. Uh, the second thing that we have is awareness. I don't think that people are aware of the scary stuff that goes on in AI. Discriminatory practices, uh, biases, uh, everything that really uh, not only track us from a privacy standpoint, but makes decisions, not decisions in the sense of intentional sense, but draws conclusions from the data that it collects mm -hmm. on us, conclusions about whether or not we can get a loan, conclusions about whether or not we are reliable paying back our mortgage, conclusions about our identity. These are the things that we need to protect from a 
legislative standpoint, but also like the public need, needs to be aware of what's going on, that whatever you leave, the traces that you leave online all the time are not just be put in a box and forget and forgotten for the for, for eternity, they're actually being used to make decisions about you. And I, I don't think that people have any idea uh, what, what's happening at that level. And, and I think that's a real pity. Do you think it's possible to get people to care? Yeah, if, if they understand. You know what I mean? Like understand. to care I mean, about... If you the, understand that at one point, this, you're going to go to the to the bank and go like, I need a loan. And, and someone goes, and they tell them, no, you're not going to get a loan. And they go like, why? Uh, I don't know. The, the AI says that you cannot. So first of all, there's a, there's an issue like, I need to know why. Tell me why. Give me an, give me an answer. So there's a problem of transparency. We don't have that. Second, these decisions are made, mm -hmm. first of based on the, the, the crumbs and the pieces that the AI is able to collect about us on the internet, for instance. Making decisions that are discriminatory all the time, right? Uh, this, this, we know that these decisions are often made, the decisions made by the AI are often made based on protected categories. Are you from a neighborhood with uh, more African-Americans? You're more likely to get denied for a loan. Why is that? Well, because your, the zip code in your application is a flag from, for the AI to determine that you're not going to be able to repay your loan. That's a, this is a plainly discriminatory practice. I might totally be able to do that, but you're judging me because I'm where I'm from. Uh, same thing for uh, you. You're gonna find a new job, and you go on LinkedIn or on this like platforms and put down your credentials and try to find a job. Well, the AI is not gonna show you certain kind of jobs if you're a woman, if you're an African American, and those jobs are usually the high-paying jobs. Okay, because the AI determines based on uh, the statistics that it does that you're not cannot be targeted for those kind of jobs, and that goes on and on and on. So in our everyday practice, it's not just a matter of privacy; it's a matter of the information that is getting that is that is uh, um, that we actually it's not even stolen; it's that we volunteer is used to make decisions. So if next mm -hmm. time you're applying for an health insurance and your premium is higher. Maybe it's because, actually, most probably it's because the AI determines that you're a high risk. Why? I don't know. Maybe it's your Fitbit that determines that based on your, uh, how much you walk. Like, that stuff matters. And, and I think that if we don't stop it now, it's just going to escalate. So the public needs to be more aware of, of this. So more, mm -hmm. more, more, more focus on that and less focus on, on consciousness. That's my bottom line. Clear, clear. So I got everything wrong during during this Okay. Of course, of course. Well, Mariana, thanks a lot. Thank it was you. very interesting. Uh, thanks again for you know for coming here and the uh, well. Have a good day and enjoy your time in Italy, your vacation Thank or you. workation. Workation. I'll be cool these days. <laughs> Take care. Thank you. Bye bye.